Okay, good to see all of you here again today. It's a hot day and I'm sure you're all glad to come into the aircon. And I hope that the aircon keeps you awake during the sermon because uh, it's a really important passage that we're listening to today. So let's go to God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to uh, listen from God's Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly pray that your acts in history will be explained to us by your Word and your Holy Spirit working in our hearts to show us your true character and how we need to relate to you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, how would you describe your Christian life? Uh, how would you describe your Christian walk? Do you ever feel tired or weary or worn out, exhausted or burnt out? Are there times perhaps where things don't seem to be going your way? and uh, your prayers seem unanswered, life is a struggle, and it seems like your life is full of disappointments. Does that describe the way that you feel, or maybe the way you felt at some point in life? Because I'm sure all of us, uh, I felt it myself, where you sort of feel like, you know, things are not really going the way you'd like them to go in your Christian life. And you sort of ask yourself, what is the way forward? Uh, What is the answer to this slump, or this struggle, that you seem to be experiencing as a Christian? Now, I think that uh, if we follow today's passage, it may give us a few answers to uh, those questions. Now, if you come to today's passage, uh, actually, it's been a very bad time in Israel's history. Uh, actually, since we were reading all the way from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we recognize that there's been a bad time for God's people in Israel. First of all, spiritually, things were very poor, very bad. Uh, God's people have been very unfaithful to God. Uh, the priests, as well, have been wicked or weak. And nationally, things have been going very poorly as well. So last week, uh, we saw how they had lost a major battle against the, their rivals, the Philistines, and had lost 34,000 people. And they also lost the Ark of the Lord, and the priests had been killed. But there was a bit of a bright spot in uh, the chapter just before this, when the Ark, uh, we, we, were, we were shown, through God's mighty power, was actually restored back to them, even though it was captured by the Philistines because of great, the great power shown by God. But unfortunately, that bright spot didn't last very long because subsequently after that, even though the ark was returned back to Israel, God's people, the Israelites, failed to treat the ark with respect. They failed to treat the ark with honor and God put 70 of them to death. And that was when uh, the ark was sort of mothballed. So if you look up this map here, you know, we sort of get a feel. This is the, the nation of Israel. Those are the 12 tribes in different colors. So we're going to focus, our act, all the actions sort of focus here. Okay, so we're going to zoom in there. Alright, next slide. Okay, so remember last week, uh, they had a big battle around Ephek. Uh, the ark was lost, and it was brought down to Ashdod, and then sort of did the tours here. Okay, and then it went from Akron to Beth Shamesh. And then Beth Shamesh, God killed 70 of the people because they failed to honor or treat the ark with respect. And then after that, it went from Beth Shemesh and it went to Kiriath Jiriam, which is up here in the north. And that's where we begin the story in chapter 7, verse 1. So in verse 1 it says, So the men of Kiriath Jiriam came and took the ark, took up the ark. Oh, you can leave it up. We're going to keep referring to it. So the men of Kiriath Jiriam came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abimedab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliza, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath Jerem, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. 
And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him wholly, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So, once uh, the ark was returned up here to Kiriath Jiriam, we, we learn a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because for 20 years, the ark was never returned back to the temple in Shiloh, where it came from. So remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, there was a temple up here in Shiloh, and that's where the ark came from. But for 20 years, since then, when the ark returned from the Philistines back to Israel, it never found its way back to the temple. It remained in this obscure town of Kiriath Jiriam, where it was guarded, it said, by Eliza. Now, what happened during this time? Well, I think that during this time, it seems as if God was forgotten, isn't it? Uh, they put the ark in a corner, it was put in mothballs, put in cold storage, and they sort of never worshipped God in, in, in the temple anymore. They didn't, maybe they didn't even give sacrifices to Him. So what were they doing, the Israelites, during this time when they had forgotten God? Well, instead of worshipping Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, if you look at verse 3, it seems like the people, God's people, were worshipping instead the Baals, or the Baals, and the Asherahs. Now, why were they doing this? Why, is it they were, why, why were they not worshipping God, but instead worshipping the gods of the neighbouring people, the Baals and Asherahs? Well, I think it's because many people say the worship of the Baals and the Asherahs was very attractive to God's people. Now, uh, if you see the next slide, this is a Baal, if you've never seen him. Very exceptional person. Oh, not so fast, not so fast, okay. And, uh, okay, and this is the Asherahs. Okay, next slide. Okay, the Asherahs were sort of like the female equivalent of the Baals. The Baals were the male god, the goddess uh, gods, and then the Asherahs were the female goddesses. So, if you notice, I sort of censored them, right? So, that's why there are all these blue things here, okay? <laughs> Alright. And the, the, the Baals and the Asherahs were like the gods of fertility. Uh, the gods of, uh, also sometimes gods of war, but mostly the gods of fertility. They were meant to bring fertility to your crops, fertility to your livestock, and fertility to yourself. So it was very attractive uh, on a few levels to the Philistines and especially the Israelites because uh, to worship the Baals and Asherahs, they would have something sort of like an acted prayer. And basically what they would do is they would have sex with the temple prostitute or they would have sex with each other and in this way, the Baals and Asherahs would look down on them and think, okay, this is what we need to do too, and they would bring fertility to the land, the livestock, and themselves. So the, how much more interesting that would be, isn't it? Because compared to the worship of Yahweh, where they had to keep bringing sacrifices, and you know, giving their goats and chickens and, and what else to be sacrificed because of their sins, instead of learning the law and all these rules and regulations that they had to follow, and feeling guilty, they just had to have sex, right? Or, you know, have very sort of have a drunken parties or whatever. Seems like a lot more interesting to do. And at the same time, the Baals and Asherahs were very sort of tolerant. So like we saw last week when uh, the ark was captured, they put him, the, the, they put God's ark in the, the temple of Dagon. So the Philistines had many gods. They worshipped many gods. There were just Baals and Asherahs. There was Dagon. So, for the Israelites, they thought, well, isn't it really good? Because, you know, God, He demands an exclusive worship of Him. You know, we've got to always worship God only, God alone. We've got to follow all these rules and regulations. We've got to keep sacrificing animals. But isn't Baal and Asherah really good? Because we can, we can have all these fun things to do, pleasurable things to do, and we can worship anybody. But at the same time, as they had turned away from God, they mothballed the ark, 
they were no longer doing sacrifices, they were worshipping the Baals and Asherahs. Things on the ground were getting from bad to worse. And that's why if you look in verse 2, right, Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Now the words here, mourn and sought after the Lord, are the same words that we keep reading about in the book of Judges. Where every time something goes bad for God's people, they always cry out to God. They're mourning and crying. Because while they had turned back to superstition, and they turned to the local gods and goddesses, things were not working out for them. The Philistines were growing more and more powerful. They were more and more oppressed by the Philistines. And that's why they cry out to God after 20 years. And in verse 3, this is the point in time where they finally listen to Samuel. Now, I wouldn't want to be Samuel during this time, right? Can you imagine? If you think of it, he was appointed by God all those years ago. He heard the voice of God when Eli was still alive and uh, he was a young boy. And how many years, including 20 years, had happened and he'd been preaching and teaching God's word, but the people were not ready to listen. So like for 25 years, he must have been preaching, right? Thinking, what is happening? God has called me to be a prophet. Nobody's listening. But after more than 20 years, the people were ready to listen because they were mourning and crying after God. And Samuel says to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord of all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. Now, Samuel, obviously this is a word from God, knows that people cry out and mourn uh, to God, but it may not be a real heartfelt response. It may just be emotion. So you know, I'm sure you've uh, experienced it. Maybe you've seen other people. Things go badly because we sin or turn against God. But we might not be crying out so much because of the sin itself, or we may not be crying out because we feel that we've betrayed God, but because we feel sorry about the effects of sin in our lives. So, you know, I've done something wrong, uh, I've committed adultery, I'm sad because all these bad things have happened as a result of my sin. But I'm not actually sad about my sin itself, but just I'm sad because of all the bad things that have happened. So, Samuel instructs the Israelites, says, look, if you're really sincere in turning back to God, then you need to return to the Lord with all your heart. Look at the words there very carefully, right? All your heart. And that's the first step of true repentance. Uh, if you want to have a right relationship to God, you must turn to God with all your heart. God will not allow Himself to be put on the sideline and sort of given half your heart. Because for the, for the Israelites at this time, they were chasing after the Philistine gods, the Baals and Asherahs. Maybe at the background they were still going to worship Yahweh once in a while, but God says, no, that's not enough, right? Uh, I need you to worship me with all your heart, 100%. Now I remember um, when I first became a Christian, if you look up this slide, right? Um, I, was in a, I was in a youth group or a university group, and I was going to do this for your, for your uh, outline, your bulletin, but I thought it wouldn't be very good if you tore it up into small little pieces because it would be very dirty in the hall. But what they did is they gave us a little heart. All of us was given a little heart-shaped piece of paper, right? And we were supposed to fold the heart into four pieces. Okay? And you're supposed to put down in each of the quarters of, your, of this heart the things that you love most in life. And it, you know, it's quite a clever thing. So then you're meant to tear it up into four pieces, right? The four things you love most in life. 
and then you're supposed to give each piece one at a time uh, away to God because all of it is supposed to be subsumed under your love for God. And that's what, that's what Samuel is saying here, isn't it? That everything, every aim, every dream, every ambition of God's people in that time must be given over to God. They must love God with all their hearts. They cannot have other ambitions, other loves, or other gods. And that's why the next point is, then, once you've given all your heart to God, you will rid yourselves, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourself to the Lord. Now, what was happening in Israel was that they had Yahweh plus. Okay, they had Yahweh, they, had, they, they were worshipping God, but they had all these other gods. Uh, the, the Baals, the Asherahs, who you know, would, would help with the fertility and everything else. So maybe they thought, okay, I'll, we'll worship Yahweh because you know, Yahweh brought us from Egypt into the Promised Land. But, you know, I really need to have uh, one, one other child or I, I really need my fields to be really fertile. What's the harm if I go to the temple, uh, the temple of Baal and Ashraf, so that I can have like, you know, insurance or a guarantee for more fertility? But God says no, isn't it? Uh, it's all or nothing. You must rid yourselves of the foreign gods. And as we saw again last week, when God's ark was put in the temple of Dagon, what happened? Dagon fell down at the feet of the ark. And you know, at the last time, he was broken up into small pieces. His head fell off. His arms fell off. And why was that? What did we learn last week? Because God had kabod. Remember the, the Hebrew word kabod? He was a heavy God. He was a God of glory, of weightiness. And he, only, he alone deserved worship, not the idols. And that's what is the same idea here. That Samuel is saying, once you worship God of all your heart, you must rid yourselves of all the other idols because no one is, is worthy of worship except God. And then it says there, and you and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. Now I think this is a very important lesson for us today, about 3,000, 4,000 years later, right? Because when we look at this uh, incident, the principles of how you relate to God are still the same today as it was then. If you find your relationship with God to be cold, to be distant, to be dry, then I think it, it won't hurt us to ask the questions that Samuel asked of the Israelites, isn't it? And ask yourself, have you returned to the Lord with all your heart? So I remember a pastor was saying that in university, uh, a group of students were asked in a survey what they wanted uh, out of life. What was their aim in life? What, what did they want out of life? Right? What was the aim of life? And then many people wrote down, you know, you can think of the usual things, right? Maybe you can ask yourself the question, what do you want out of life? What's your aim in life? Some people wanted a good job, promotion, children, comfortable house, comfortable life where they could travel and see the world. And uh, this pastor was saying that uh, in, in the university, basically all the answers were to do with materialism and upward mobility. And he asked a question, which I think was a good question, is if you were a Christian, answering that same question, where does God fit into all this? Where does Jesus fit into all this? And your aims and your plans and your purposes for life. Because if your aim in life has got nothing to do with God, then how can you be 100% or all of your heart following after God? 
that's what the Christians, uh, that's what the Israelites thought they, were, they could do. Isn't it? They were like the Philistines. Uh, they thought they could love many things, many gods. But God says, no, you must only love me alone. See, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 22, right? Okay, so the, the, it's, not a, you know, it's not just a once-off thing. It's a consistent thing across the Bible. If you want to follow God, you must follow God of all your heart. So one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. So, is that a lesson that we need to learn, uh, that Samuel taught the Israelites in those days? Do we love God with all our heart, and all our soul, and all our mind? Or our hearts, uh, sort of, you know, maybe 50%, 60%, or even less. And we're chasing after other things. Now, Samuel goes on to say, then rid yourself of all the foreign gods and asterisks. Now, obviously, when we visit people's houses, I'm sure if we go and visit, you know, your neighbor's house, you don't like see, hey, that's, that's Baal, right? Hey, look, that's an asterisk over there. No, isn't it? There, there are no more Baals, no more asterisks as far, as far as I'm aware of. But the, the, the idols of our neighbors, okay, because here the Israelites were, were influenced by, the, I guess, the fleshly, sensual delights of the Baals and Asherahs. Well, the same way, we can have idols around us today of the, of the people around us. But what are these idols? What does the Bible say are some of these idols? Well, they're not Baals or Asherahs. In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says, right, next slide. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in Colossians chapter 3, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. See, these are the things which divide our heart. These are the things which stop ourselves from serving God of all our heart. Uh, following after money, following after sexual morality, lust, evil greed, uh, evil desires or greed, these are the things which stop us from following God wholeheartedly. And these are the same things which are, are no different from the sensual delights that attracted the Israelites to the Philistine religion. And uh, we, can, we, can, we can do the same things today. Even as we are Christians, we come to church, we can be like Philistine Christians. Right? We, we think that we, are, we come to church, we listen to the Bible, and like someone said, you know, we're inoculated because we have a little bit of the Bible, then we think we're, we're Christians, but do we really serve God of all our hearts? Or we, do we still follow all these idols? And even within churches, uh, we legitimize uh, the pursuit of these idols in church. So, you know, some churches, instead of talking about following God of all your heart, it's all about how we can get rich or get good living and security rather than obedience or forgiveness of sins. Or rather than reading the Bible, which is really boring, right? I'm sure the, the Israelites thought, oh, why do we have to learn the law anymore, right? So, you know, like people think, you know, instead of reading the Bible and really reading it, we prefer to have, you know, dancing and music, healing and miracles. Maybe that's why, if you feel far away from God and dry, maybe it's because you're running after all these things and you feel tired. So Charles Spurgeon who was a very famous Christian pastor, he was counseling people and he said, some people feel really far away from God. 
And part of the reason why they feel far away from God is not because God is far away from them, but because they're chasing after so many things. Because their hearts are so divided and they are so distracted with things in life that they cannot focus on God. And that's why they feel dry. So maybe that's, that's the problem that, that we have and that's a lesson that we can le- learn from this. Now in verse 5 to 11, we, f- uh, we find that Israel actually, re- for one of the few times, listens to what God says. And they actually put away their bowels and their ashtrofs and serve the Lord only. So then verse 5 onwards, they decide to have a conference, a church conference. Okay? And this time they have a church conference at Mizpah. Okay, now if you have a look at the map, right? Uh, is there a map here? Maybe you can go back again, sorry, to the map. Okay, the, okay, the map's here. So, um, Kirib Jerem is there. And this part is here, okay, near the center part of Israel. Okay? And they decide to have a church camp there. But not actually a church camp, a national camp. Right? For all, the whole country. But, you notice what happens when they go to this camp. Uh, the Philistines, either they misunderstand what's happening, they think, oh, you know, all these Israelites are coming together, maybe they're planning to have war, let's go and fight them. Or maybe they're thinking, wow, this is a great opportunity, right? While they're all they're having their church camp, uh, this is a great time to go wipe them out. So they, they, they gather together, and uh, they prepare for battle. Now, a few things to notice here. Obviously, it's a really bad situation for Israel because if you see Mizpah, which is this here, right? Where's Mizpah again? Up there. It's deep in the heart of Israelite territory. And if the Philistines who were previously over here could, could gather over here and fight against the, the Israelites, it just shows you how powerful and how strong the Philistines were by this stage. No wonder God's people were mourning and crying out to God. Now, I was reading this book which was really helpful uh, in uh, me preaching um, through 1 Samuel. It's called The Modern Preacher in the Ancient Text. And it actually quotes this part of uh, Scripture and says, you know, when you look at the Bible narrative, there are times where you, you see something and you think, hey, this is very much exactly what happened just before, isn't it? So when you look at chapter 7, it looks exactly like what happened in chapter 4. So you remember chapter 4? They came together the Israelites and the Philistines, and they were going to fight. Now in chapter 4, the Philistines were scared, and the Israelites were confident. In chapter 7, the Israelites are scared, and the, Israelites, uh, the Philistines are confident. And the last time this happened, the Israelites lost, remember? They lost terribly, they lost 34,000 people. Now why would you expect Israel to win, Israel to win this time? You wouldn't, right? Because, obviously, Maybe I mean, usually when you go to a church camp, you don't bring all your weapons and everything, right? Uh, they, were, they didn't seem as powerful as before. Obviously, the Philistines were more powerful. Why should God let them win? Well, obviously, something has changed here, isn't it? Because when you actually look at this passage, there is a, there is a comparison between the two, especially if you look at the Hebrew words, right? So if you look up here on the slide, the one about the defeated, is it up there? Uh, okay, the, before that, uh, this one. So remember when we looked at chapter 4, we said that actually it wasn't the Philistines who defeated uh, Israel, but God who defeated Israel. So, in uh, chapter 4, it says, The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, 
And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great, and the Israel had lost 30,000 foot soldiers. But this time, what happens? Chapter 7. But that day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Now, two situations exactly the same, right? Both nations going to war, same words are being used, defeat. Uh, you know, even later when we see the word Ebenezer, which is the same place as before, right? Why was there a different result? Well, this time, what had happened was, if you look at the passage, when they went to Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. People are not sure what this means, but it's linked to fasting and confessing of sins. Right? So they were crying out to God and confessing their sins. And they were saying, we have sinned against the Lord, they said. But not only that, it says here that they had Samuel Samuel was crying out to God on their place and Samuel was making a sacrifice. Now the last time when they lost, what did they do? They said, okay, guys, we lost the first time, we lost 4,000 men. What is the answer? They said, oh, we will bring the ark with us. And uh, instead of doing anything, the ark actually brought them more destruction. You see, God uh, wants a proper relationship with people and that relationship can only be formed when there's repentance and there is an intercessor, which was Samuel. The last time they tried to manipulate God and blackmail God. Now, I like this illustration that uh, this, uh, this pastor, Dale Roth Davis, used. He said, you know, when they brought the ark last time, they were trying to manipulate God. And he uses an illustration of how, when he was younger, his brother wanted to drive his dad's brand new car his older brother. But uh, instead of trying to get his dad to just, you know, ask for the keys nicely, he tried to manipulate his father or blackmail his father. So what he did was he asked a girl for a date on a Friday night. He booked movie tickets and he booked for dinner. So after he'd done all this preparation, then he went up to his father and said, Dad, you know, this Friday, guess what? I booked a uh, a dinner with, I don't know, Mary Lou or somebody, right? And, uh, you know, I've also booked the movie tickets and I paid for them. You need to lend me the car. Not, I'll look really bad in front of Mary Lou, right? And you make you look bad too because, you, you, you know, you, you look like such a selfish father, you wouldn't lend me the car. And uh, that's what uh, exactly God was trying to, I mean, that's what the, the people of Israel were trying to do in chapter 4. They were trying to blackmail, manipulate God and God wouldn't stand for that. But notice how different it is now in chapter 7. The people are not trying to manipulate God. They're not trying to blackmail God, but they confess their sins. They poured out the water, they fasted, and they repented. They got rid of all their idols. And God listened to them. But more than that, not only did they repent, but they also had an intercessor. You see, in verse 5 and verse 8 and 10, what does Samuel do? Samuel doesn't fight. He doesn't take up arms. What does he do? He's always praying. He's praying, right? In verse 8, the Israelites said, 
they were afraid because of the Philistines and they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. See, in chapter 4, they had Hopni and Pinehas, the wicked priest, right, the scumbag priest. Uh, instead of praying, uh, instead of offering sacrifices, they were abusing the sacrifice. They were taking all the good parts, they were leaving all the bad parts for God, they were sleeping with the women in the temple. No wonder God didn't listen to, to, to Israel on that day. So the two reasons why God delivers Israel at this point in time, this, in this wonderful way, is because they repented and they had an intercessor. Now for us today, uh, we need those two elements as well, for God to deliver us and for God to save us. We need total repentance and we need an intercessor. Now obviously we do not need to have Samuel because Samuel's dead and gone, right? I mean, where's Samuel? But in the Old Testament, it was looking, you know, it's always looking forward, right? The Old Testament's always looking forward to the future. It doesn't, the Old Testament doesn't sit by its own right. It's part of the New Testament. It's looking forward to the New Testament. And Samuel's sort of looking forward to an intercessor who'd be the intercessor of all intercessors. Now in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, which is again in the Old Testament, it points forward to this intercessor who will be a an eternal intercessor for all of God's people. And this is what it says, right? Up here? Oh, I think I cut some of it off, right? Yep, okay, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, obviously he's looking to Jesus, right? But what is, why does Jesus do all these things? Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, right? therefore I will give him a portion among the great and who divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, why does Jesus die on the cross? Why is he smitten? Why is he struck down? Why is he laid the sin of us all? All the sheep that have gone astray? Because he makes intercession. He stands before us and God and says to God, Forgive these people. Right? He prays for us. He cares for us. He stands before us like our lawyer sort of thing and, and says, These people are innocent because I have died for them. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, because we have this ultimate class A, you know, all-star intercessor in Jesus, there is such great confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. So Romans chapter 8 says, Who is he that condemns? Who, who can condemn us? Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, he's interceding for us. He's our interceder, right? He intercedes for us. Because Jesus intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. 
we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, can you feel the confidence and power of these words? And the confidence and power of these words that we have is because Jesus is interceding for us. He's up there at the right hand of God. And when someone says, Oh, you know, Andrew Ong, terrible sinner, right? One day when I'm dead, right? Whatever, you know, I'm standing. He says, oh, this Andrew, he should be going to hell. But Jesus says, No, because he's interceding for me. And he's saying, No, I died for Andrew, right? And therefore he can be saved. And that's the same thing that's happening here. That Samuel is interceding for his people, but he's looking forward to Jesus who intercedes for all of us for all eternity. Now in verse 12, after this wonderful victory, what does Samuel do? Well, Samuel takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shen and he names it Ebenezer. Ebenezer literally means a stone of help, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel, Israelite territory again. So again, if you look at the map, the next slide. Now, it's a really weird thing that Samuel does. Because the last time they fought up in Ephek, which is Ebenezer, is around here too, they lost. Right? Now, they win this battle of Mizpah, which is down here, right? So they lost up here, and now they win here. And he gets a stone, and he puts a stone there, and he calls the stone the same name as when they lost before. Why does he do that? Why does he call this stone the same name as where they lost before? Well, he wants them to learn from the mistake of the last battle, isn't it? Why did they win now when they lost at Ebenezer before? Well, the last time they didn't repent and they didn't have an intercessor. And God did not help them. Right? God was no help to them. When they, the last time it ended, it ended in Ichabod, remember? The glory of God had left Israel. Now they had repented, they had an intercessor in Samuel, and God was helping them. And as we read the rest of um, uh, chapter 7, we see that God wasn't just helping them in this battle, because later on, they win back all these Philistine cities which uh, they didn't control before. Remember where the ark went through in chapter 5 and 6? So God kept helping them because they had repented. Now today, obviously, we don't have this stone. I don't have this stone here, right? Big stone to remember what happened at Ebenezer. But I think like what God was doing to setting up this stone called Ebenezer, we do today. So some people say that this stone was like a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? A sacrament is where we do an acted, an acted uh, act, which helps us remember what God has done for us in the past. Some people say it's like it's words become action, right? So we don't have a stone, we don't go past the stone, hey, yeah, yeah, that's what God did, you know, Ebenezer. But today, as Christians, maybe some churches do it every Sunday, we do it once a month, we act out or we have a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us so that we remember the great work that God did for us at the cross. We don't look to the stone of Ebenezer, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right, this is what Jesus says. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this when you drink of it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why do we remember God, uh, Jesus Christ? Why do we do the sacrament? Because as Christians, we look to the past and we see God is mighty. God is great. God is powerful. God is loving. And He has shown that love in Jesus at the cross. And because of what Jesus has done, that mighty act on the cross through Jesus, and Jesus interceding for us, we can stand and be faithful today. That's why we read the Bible, isn't it? When you do your quiet time. What exactly do you do when you do your quiet time? Are you just reading for the sake of reading? We don't read ancient history just for the sake of reading ancient history. When we read about Ebenezer, we say God is a great and mighty God who helps His people when they turn to Him. When we eat the Lord's Supper, when we drink the Ribena and eat the bread, we take it, we remember the mighty act that God did for us in Jesus. And, and that means that today we can keep being faithful to Him because we know He has done a great act for us in Jesus. We have confidence in a great God. And that's why when we ever feel dry, depressed, distressed, that things are not working out for us, that God is not answering our prayers, the answer is not, okay, you know, what is the next prayer that God is going to answer for me today? The answer is like what Samuel did when he set up the stone at Ebenezer. Call Ebenezer, I mean. We look to what God has done in the past, His mighty acts in the past for us at the cross. And we know that God is powerful and mighty. He acts for those who turn to Him and love Him all our hearts. And that gives us confidence to go on in the future. You know some churches, um, which I've visited before, uh, it, it always looks to the present or the future, you know. Just keep praying for this. If you pray for this, if you have enough faith, God will reward you, Right? Uh, let's, looking, let's keep seeing what God is doing for me today. But that's not the way that the Bible works. Because the way, the way the Bible works is it remembers once and for all what God has done for us in Jesus. It remembers what God did for the Israelites at Mizpah, at the stone called Ebenezer. It sees how God has acted in history and reveals His faithfulness to His people, His love for His people, His great power. And today... As we look back, then the lesson for us is we should have this great confidence too. Because if God loves us so much, and He's so powerful as to give us His Son to intercede for us, then who can be against us? Even if things are not going well, even if things are going badly, even if you feel that you're disappointed of God, look to the cross, look at what God did at Mizpah, and see that God is a powerful God. If you turn to Him, He will save you and He will deliver you. But the response for us must be, have we turned back to God with all our hearts? Uh, Is your heart divided? Are you swayed and influenced by the sensual culture of today and the things of this world? And you're not serving Him alone. So you're very distracted, you know. You feel tired, but you're not tired because you're following God. You're tired because you're following so many things. Well, if God has acted in this way in the past and He's so powerful and so loving and mighty, you know, He's a really heavy God, right? He's kabod. Then we must love Him alone. You know, we must turn to Him and serve Him only. And there's great confidence because He's given us this wonderful intercessor called Jesus 
who right now is standing at the right hand of God in, in heaven and is interceding for you no matter what you've done wrong, no matter where you stand before Him. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. Truly we want to thank you for how you acted in history in Miss Pao all those years ago. That it took such a long time for your people, then 20 years to turn back to you. But even then, when they turned back in repentance and in mourning and in genuine uh, getting rid of all idols in their life, you gave them a wonderful intercessor in Samuel and you gave them deliverance and salvation. We pray that as we look at Samuel, we will see our true intercessor in Jesus who is your son but yet has died for us, who is eternal but yet chose to come to be a man and to take on all our sins and to be the focal point of your judgment. And right now is in heaven at your right hand interceding for us and as He intercedes, who can accuse us and who can take us away from our salvation? Dear Father, may each and every one of us truly examine our lives and see if there is any idol, any idolatry in our life which is taking us away from loving You with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And help us to see that that is not the right way to relate to You, that there can be no true relationship with You, no authentic relationship, uh, friendship with you unless there is total allegiance on our part and we pray that you will help us through the Holy Spirit to always stay faithful to you and focus on you and everything and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen